0: Why, why do you obey God? Why should you obey God? Many people, especially those young in the faith, obey God and begin to follow Him and repent because of the good things and the real things that God offers them. And He does offer us great and precious promises, amen? He offers us forgiveness of sins. He offers us immortality and eternal life. He offers us adoption and union with Christ. <clears throat> and Romans 8:29, I believe, says that we will be glorified with Christ, language that I still don't yet understand. And it is so radically good news to be united to god himself and be glorified with god himself in some mysterious way you're invited to a kingdom of righteousness joy and peace forever and ever the great banquet hall of god's glory there are many benefits and that that's what's on offer so as i said last week repentance is good news it's not just you have to repent you get to repent You get to turn from darkness and meaninglessness and life and a life that's so self-centered and focused that when you die, you get nothing from it to a life of everlasting joy and peace that grows like a mustard seed. That's what draws (coughs) men in to the gospel. But once somebody continues on in the faith even having those promises in hand um, you're going to have to follow God in the dark sometimes and trust in those promises and you're going to have to follow God and obey him even when there is no incentive or benefit to your obedience John Kowalski often says seek his face not his hands and i think that's a good way to put it seek his face not his hands and as you progress in the christian life you will learn the meaning of that you will learn what it means to seek god's face and not his hands and many of you are past me in your maturity and holiness perhaps and so i'm not i'm not pretending to be somebody but As we move on, we're going to have to follow God in the dark, trusting the promises He's given us, but following Him without any incentive for His glory. Now, when God first called Abraham, He gave him incentives, great incentives. Look at... um, I just want to turn to verse 12, or chapter 12, just to reiterate those. Now, yes... God had a high call for Abraham. He said, Go from your country and your kindred. So leave everything you knew. Leave friends. Leave family. Leave your father. Leave your inheritance. And go to the country that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse and you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. Now, I ask you if God came down and spoke to you and said that to you, I am sure you would gladly leave the house you're living in and the place you live in, and you would go where God told you to go. This is a no brainer to me. He's going to bless Abraham, he's going to be a great name. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed in Abraham. This is a no-brainer. You follow. The incentives are clear. The benefit is there. Here, though, there is no reward given by God. Now, we know it's a test, but Abraham doesn't know it's a test. He just says, go and give me your son. There is no explanation from God. There is no comfort given. There is just a command for Abraham to take his son Isaac, the most precious thing in his life, and give it back to God as an offering, a burnt offering. Every other sacrifice God had asked Abraham to make was balanced by a promise that made it worth its while. There is something to lose, but more to gain. Here, however, there is nothing to gain. No promise balances the loss. I think it's easy to obey God in the light. When you have a sense of God's love for you, and when you're filled with faith, you ever, you ever get that? You ever have times or days or seasons when you're filled with faith? You feel bold and strong. And you're just encouraged in the Lord. That's easy to follow God then. And when you're surrounded by peace on every side of you, it's easy to follow the Lord then. And when you see what you will gain from your obedience, that's even easier So when there's peace, when there's security, when you're surrounded by love, when you feel a sense of the Father's goodness and comfort and watching over you, it's easy to follow God then. And praise God because I think that is, that's most of the Christian life. And you can grow into an awareness of that. But that's not this sermon. I do do want to point that out. You can grow into an awareness of your Heavenly Father's goodness and provision for you. And if you don't or have never felt that, or are not, or if you're not existing in that mindset, that is something you can bring yourself to. I think we, we touched on that in the spiritual growth campaign. However, there are going to be times in your life where you're called to a deeper obedience. And a deeper ode- obedience is going to take place in the dark is going to take place when you cannot see any reward for obeying God. When He gives you no comfort or consolation. When you're not surrounded by peace and joy. When it is very difficult to obey God and you you don't see any human reason to do or follow God. And you're conflicted and you feel angst And yet, God will say, Obey and follow me in the dark. That's where we are today with Abraham. When your faith is tested like this, like what I'm talking about in Abraham, um, you could do two things. You could say no to God, and you could turn away. you could shake your fist at God and lament and as you know and i've said many times before i don't think it is proper for christians to lament in the way that the evangelical culture is telling us to lament lament in the sense that you're sad and you're downcast and the lord has brought arrows into your chest and you and you are brought low to the grave, but yet you worship him because you still have hope in him. Like Lamentations 3.23, I think. Jeremiah looks over Jerusalem, burning. And he says, the wormwood in the gall. And but afterward, he comes to himself and he says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's proper lamentation. So you could ignore him. You could lament in an improper way. Or you could obey and cast yourself upon him and praise him in the dark and follow him when there is no incentive to follow him. Verse 1. God is testing Abraham. And after these things, God tested Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. Now, why would God test somebody? What's the reason for testing anybody on anything? Because a test reveals what's really there. That's why you would test somebody. Um, at school, you give tests because you want to see what is really in the head of the student. Allie just passed her driver's test, right? Driving around, congratulations, Allie. <laughs> Watch out, yeah. Um, but. The point of that is to see if she knows how to drive. When I was, when I was being ordained, it was a kind of an, an intimidating experience. You had, uh, I had four pastors, older and wiser and smarter than me, come into the room and give me questions about the Bible and theology and my life. And they were testing to see what was there, what was in me. Did I know the word? Did I live according to Christ? And so test, you would test somebody to know what's really there. And God tests people to know what is in them. And we see through this throughout the Bible. In Deuteronomy 8.2, it says, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years, he says to the wilderness generation. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. Forty years to test you, to see what was in you, whether you would keep his commands or not. Some of them did not. Most of them did not. The devil is right. It's easy to follow God in the light. But strike out your hand. And take away what you have given him. Job 1, 9 through 11. Satan enters the courts of the Lord. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? After the Lord said, Look at my servant Job. How faithful and upright he is. Satan's answer. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him. And his house. And all that he has. On every side. You have blessed the work of his hands. And his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face Satan was probably right about many many people but he was not right about Job and he's not right about Abraham what is inside Abraham what is going to come out of Abraham and us when we are put in the dark forsaken by God at least as it seems to us. Another quote from Walton, because I think it's good. He says, Has Abraham's faith been motivated by personal gain or simply by, or, or simply by his love for God? Up until this point, one does not know which is true. Maybe Abraham himself does not know for sure. This test allows the patriarch to Demonstrate himself. That his faith is not driven by what he will receive out of it, but by his commitment to God. God and God alone motivates his faith. Is he willing to give up all that he stands to gain? All he loves and all that he hopes for. Verse 2. The content of the test is this. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. The test is, will Abraham take his son, what he most loved in life, and will he give it back to God? Will he do that? Now, Don't forget, Abraham is pre-Moses. So this would not have been an odd request for Abraham, as it is to us, because we know about God. We know about Moses in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We know about the New Covenant. We know about Christ. So we know the character of God. Abraham does not know. God has not revealed fully his character yet all Abraham knows is that Yahweh is powerful he is dangerous he has protected me but the other Canaanite gods require sacrifice too human sacrifice child sacrifice so this would not have been an odd request it would have been a painful request but not a strange one this is completely consistent with a Canaanite worldview common so it was not an odd demand but it was a great demand and all of Abraham's life centered on the promised child right go I'm going to give you a child and through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed so really all of God's promises center in on Isaac this child So Abraham must have thought, have I done something wrong? Why has God forsaken me? But he obeys. And the thing that gets me is God does not explain himself. He gives no comfort. He gives no incentive. There's no condition if you do this. He just says, go, take the most precious thing that you have, slaughter him, burn him and give him to me. From Abraham's perspective, he was forsaken from God, by God. The promises ripped away and he is yet told to obey. In my view, I think this is the deepest kind of obedience that one could possibly demonstrate to God because there is no personal incentive at all it comes as a total loss to Abraham. There is nothing motivating Abraham but the will and command of God. It's a loss. This kind of obedience when it's faced loss says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This kind of obedience when it's stretched to its limit is going to say, Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will be done. I don't I only I don't I have never come to this kind of testing. But this kind of obedience is going to suffer loss and is going to be stretched beyond what you thought it would be possible to be stretched. Now, if you are tested like this, know that God tests great men like this and great women like this. And He does awesome and mighty things. And it is a black eye in Satan's face when you obey at a loss to yourself. Again, C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters, a book which you must read or listen to, is about a chief demon giving advice to an underling demon. And I find it very interesting what he says, calling Christ the enemy, Speaking to his protege, Wormwood, he says, Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human, no longer desiring but intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe in which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and yet still obeys. That, that is when when great things are done. I want to trace the obedience of Abraham in three quick movements. Number one, he brings himself under the yoke. Number two, he ascends the mountain. Number three, he takes the knife. First, Abraham's obedience begins with him coming under the yoke. Verse 3. And Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Notice there is no objection from Abraham. There is no lamentation. There is no raising his fist at God. There is just obedience a resolve to follow God period On the 3rd day verse 4 Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar It was a 3-day journey to Moriah riding together with his son And so that you could maybe psych yourself into obedience for a minute like I'm going to I'm going to do this like if you have to jump over like, you know, a small river or something, you can psych yourself into doing something. I see people psych themselves up all the time. But Abraham can't psych himself up into doing this. Maybe initially, but that initial reflex of obedience is put to the ultimate test because it is a 3-day journey to the mountain. A lot of amazing things happen on the 3rd day in scripture. So he, he's not, he, maybe he could psych himself into this originally, cutting the wood, bringing the knife, saddling the donkey, but now it's going to be tested for three long, arduous days to Moriah where he will burn and kill his son and offer his son to the Lord. One commentator says, We are left to imagine the pang that shot through the father's heart when he caught sight of the mountain that he would slaughter his son on. So he brings himself under the yoke that God placed on him. We don't know exactly what's in his heart. We don't know the doubt, the angst, the sorrow, the despair. We can only imagine. But what we do know is he brings himself under the yoke. Next movement, Abraham... Abraham's obedience is demonstrated because he not only brings himself under the yoke, but he ascends the mountain. Verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. Now that's a perplexing thing for Abraham to say. Two options. Number one, was this said in Faith, or number two, was this said in order to to create the illusion that this was a normal sacrifice, and he didn't want the servants to get in the way when they saw him binding Isaac and taking a knife to slaughter his son. So, it could be a lie said in order to throw the young man off the track, or it could have been said in some kind of dim hope that God would still hold true to his promises. Because don't forget, when Isaac was born, or right before Isaac was born, Abraham said, Oh, let Ishmael live before you. This is the son I have. Let him live before you and be the promised seed. And what does God say? No. Through Isaac. Shall your offspring be named? I think Abraham's faith in the promise is being put to the test in a very severe, intense way. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews reflects on this action by Abraham and says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead. It seems that there is a confused, dim, struggling hope that somehow this powerful God would still bring about in some inscrutable ways the promises that through Isaac shall your offspring be named even though he was told to kill Isaac the man must have been very conflicted and very confused and very challenged but there is a dim hope it seems Every step up the mountain seems to be a prophecy. And in verse 6, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so both of them went together. So you can imagine Isaac being a young man right now, maybe 10 to 15 ish, having wood placed on his back as they ascend the mountain. He carries the very thing that he would be sacrificed on. Verse 7. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham. Uh, he said to his father, Abraham, my father. And Isaac said, here I am, my son. There must have been an oppressive silence. Silence. I mean, you're certainly not joking with your son and laughing with him when you're three minutes away from ending his life. And so I can imagine Isaac breaking the silence and saying, Father, in some kind of confused fashion, uh, we have the wood, we have the knife, we have the fire, but where is the sacrifice? Interesting, at least at this point, Abraham is there to answer. The father is there to answer the son. Verse 8. And Abraham answered him and said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering my son. So they went, both of them together. The father is still with the son. And Abraham seems to be speaking much better than he knew when he said the Lord would provide. Because he did not, surely, he could not have known or had that much confidence that the Lord would provide. But he spoke, I believe, prophetically, not knowing that that would be essentially the message of the gospel, the Lord will provide. Essentially, the message of the gospel, the Christian faith, is based on the thesis that what God requires from you, he provides to you. Again, I, would, I, I, would, I like to know what's inside people's minds. I, you know, I started majoring in psychology when I went into college, and then I backed out for communications. I, I really wish I stuck with psychology but I would like to know what's in Abraham's mind I mean certainly there's a numbness in his heart as he ascends the mountain certainly there's despair perhaps there is a dim slim hope that somehow God is going to do something and give him back his son but the one thing he does He ascends the mountain. He comes under the yoke and He ascends the mountain. Regardless of what's going on in Him, He continues in obedience. Paul talked about the obedience of faith in Romans. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name. The obedience of faith I think we see from Abraham is much more complex than just being confident and going forth in triumphant confidence in yourself. It's not that easy all the time. The obedience of faith is going to come with fear. It's going to come with doubt, despair, confusion. And yet the obedience of faith will come under the yoke and it will ascend the mountain that God has given you to ascend. That is the obedience of faith. It's what you do despite what's inside of you. Next, Abraham prepares the sacrifice. He comes under the yoke. He ascends the mountain and he prepares the sacrifice. Isaac is a perfect sacrifice, is he not? Verse 9. Perfect in a sense that I mean blameless, without spot, without wrongdoing. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood the loudest thing in that verse is the silence of Isaac. Not a word from Isaac. Nothing is said. Not a word before he is bound. And the fact that Abraham's 100 years old at this point and needs two young men to assist him on this journey, plus his son, shows, I think, that the binding of Isaac was done at Isaac's consent. There's not a word from him. There's no struggle that we see. It's just the binding of Isaac. Certainly a 100-year-old man could not outdo a 13-year-old boy or a 15-year-old boy. Now, if I told my son, to lay down. I'm going to tie your hands. And I said it with sternness and seriousness he would do it. So I cannot imagine what's going through Abraham's mind at that point. Lay down on this, Isaac. And maybe there was a question, we're not told. But he binds Isaac. And certainly Isaac begins to Realize the lamb that he was speaking about and asking his father about. A good quote, again from John Walton. Oh, before that, verse 10, he takes the knife. Abraham takes the knife, then he reaches out his hand. And he takes the knife. Abraham is now brought to the point. He's now brought to the point of following through on slaughtering his son. Maybe he could have psyched himself into it originally. Maybe there was great angst in his heart as he was ascending the mountain. But now he takes the knife. Soren Kierkegaard. Soren Kierkegaard, a philosopher, 150 years ago, a couple hundred years ago, comments on this passage, and he says, Many a father has lost a child. But then it was God, the unchangeable and inscrutable will of the Almighty. It was his hand that took the child. Not so with Abraham. For him, a harder trial was reserved. Along with the knife, The fate of Isaac was put into Abraham's own hands. And he stood there, the old man, with his only hope. But he did not doubt. He did not look in anguish to the left or to the right. He did not challenge heaven with his prayers. He knew it was God, the Almighty, that tried him. He knew it was the hardest sacrifice that he could, de- could have been demanded of him. But he also knew that no sacrifice was too hard when God demanded it. And he drew the knife. And I can imagine Abraham drawing the knife, coming up, about to bring his force down on Isaac, his son, who is there in fear and trembling. And just as he does that, a voice comes from heaven, Abraham. Abraham. Yeah. Do not lay your hands on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God says, now I know. There is a knowledge that we think about in the West, which means head knowledge, just cognitive understanding. But I think in the East, and especially in the biblical mind, there is a knowledge deeper than the mind. To know in the Bible is more intimate at times than just cognition. To know means intimate awareness. It means to experience something. I mean, it's Mother's Day, and I'm so thankful for my mom, and I'm so thankful for Nydia, who is a wonderful mom. On Mother's Day, they know. My, Nydia knows that I appreciate her as a mother. But to, for me to demonstrate it, or for a child to demonstrate that he or she loves their mom on Mother's Day... That brings the awareness of what they know to their heart. It brings an awareness. It demonstrates that love and appreciation. That's what's going on here. Now I know. It's an experiential, intimate awareness that Abraham demonstrates to God. What did the test prove exactly? It proved that Abraham fears God. That means to esteem him above anything else. It means to make God and God alone the ultimate point of reference for your life, rather than yourself, rather than your own kingdom. It is to say, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's fear. And fear is demonstrated by not withholding anything God asks of you. He says, Now I know that you fear me, seeing that you have not withheld anything. That means to abandon everything for the Lord. So the sin of, of Adam was grasping for what God had not given him in order to be God. But the triumph of Abraham is losing and abandoning what God had given him Precisely because he is not God. The ultimate point of reference in Abraham's life, contra to Adam and Eve, is God in God alone. Abraham was able to subordinate both will and desire under God, completely orienting the entire self under God. Approximating to him and him alone. That, let it be known, and something we're severely missing in the church today is the call to discipleship. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That is a project in self-abandonment. The cross, that's an instrument of death. It means to lose oneself, to abandon oneself for God. So to take up your cross is to lose ourselves for Christ. And that, that means to bring ourselves into conformity with God. I know I've said this a couple of times recently, but that means... To bring conformity, oneself into conformity with God, it means to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So if I love God with all of my heart and soul, that means I'm going to emulate who he is. I love, when I was at Nyack College, a speaker came in, and he ended his talk with maybe the profound sentence I ever heard in my life. He said, why would you want to be who you are? Be who Christ is. Bang. Exactly. Exactly the kind of call. Why would you want to be who you are? Be conformed to His image. That is how to love God with heart and soul. To love God with all your mind is to think His thoughts. What He says is true is what you believe is true. To love God with all your strength, that's what you do. So what he says to do, that's what you do. That's how you love God. With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Bringing yourself, the entire self, every aspect into conformity with him. To sin is to miss the mark. To love God is to approximate to the very mark itself. To God himself. That's the call to discipleship. Now the Lord provides for Abraham. Abraham and puts his, and and puts his covenant in stone. Let me just read 13 through 18 again. When Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of Isaac his son. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I notice that it's not a lamb that's provided. It was a ram. Isaac said where is the lamb and Abraham said God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering yet we have a ram find that interesting in verse 14 Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide literally the Lord will see we have the same idiom in English when someone says I will see to it That means I will take care of the details and make sure it's done. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So, in other words, to this day, there is a saying that God's people say. That on the mountain of the Lord, that's where he provides stuff. That's where he sees to stuff. The only other two other mountains of the Lord ever mentioned in Scripture is Sinai and Jerusalem. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your only son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and went back to Beersheba. Interestingly, I'm not going to read it, but interesting, 24, 20 through 24, is a just a birth narrative. Milka bears children to Nahor and Uz and Buzz and Chesed and Hazo and so. Why why is this here? And why did the people who put chapters in the Bible decide to end the story with verse 24 instead of verse 19? That seems to be where the narrative ends, right? Because In verse 23, the Lord provides a wife for Isaac. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. So not only does the Lord provide the sacrifice, he actually provides the continuation of Abraham's line. Isaac, his wife Rebekah, who would birth Jacob. Um Now Abraham was in the dark, alone, forsaken, confused, and yet he obeyed. Two, just two words of assessment, and um, this is a triumph of obedience. This is an absolute triumph of obedience. The quality of Abraham's faith was tested and tried, and it resulted in obedience and praise. Not a word from Abraham. What do you do when you're put in the dark? Or what will you do when you put in the dark? What will I do when I'm put in the dark? When there is no consolation, when there is no comfort, and when there is no answer from God and yet He gives you a mountain to ascend and something to die to. Isaiah 50.10 tells us, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on His God. You may go through a season of darkness When you walk in darkness and you have no light and you feel utterly abandoned and forsaken, trust in the Lord and rely on your God. Number two, what will the testing then reveal in your life? What will come out of you when you're tested? And I think God gives many tests to us. But think of it this way. Why would you test someone? To see what's really there. Why would God test you? For you to demonstrate what is really there. First Peter, Peter says, In this suffering, you now rejoice. A little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Perhaps right now, you have been grieved by various trials in your life. The purpose, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let praise come out of you when you're tested. Because the testing of your faith is more precious than gold. It is not only being tested, but being refined. When when you have a chance to demonstrate obedience to God in the dark, may worship and praise and obedience come out of us. And God will be able to say, Have you seen my servant? How faithful and upright she is. Have you seen, my servant, how faithful and upright he is not through themselves, but through Christ in them? Interesting note. God told, to, told Abraham to go where? To the land of Moriah on a mountain. On In 2 Chronicles 3.1, we see that... The temple is built on a mountain in Moriah. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. And interestingly enough, and as you all know, I'm sure, thousands of years later, another father would give his son, his only son, the one whom he loved, And he would sacrifice him for the world because he is the provider. And that son would show obedience just like Abraham showed obedience. And he would say, even though he was in utter darkness, not my will, but your will be done. As he dropped sweat, great drops of blood were told because of the intensity of the testing and he carried the wood on his back to the place where he would be sacrificed and he called out to the Lord and said father just like Isaac but this time no answer and that's the difference there is no here I am my son there is just forsakenness for Christ and that's all My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the sun flew fled away, and it was dark for three hours. The Lord will provide the sacrifice. Christ is the lamb, Paul um, John says that I think Abraham did not actually get. He got a ram. But the Lamb that God would provide is the one of whom John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's the Lamb. There's the one that the Lord will provide on the mountain. Because that's where God gets things done. That's where He sees to it. So I want to praise not just Abraham but more praise belongs to Christ who is utterly forsaken. Now I wonder what was in Christ's mind because he was fully God but he was also fully man and great drops of blood do not come out of a man who is not conflicted and it does not come out of a man who knows exactly what's going to happen in the end It comes out of a man who trusts God even when he is walking in darkness. And therefore, we are told God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's follow that example of obedience. Let's not shake our fists at God when we go, when we enter the dark. Let's not enter into great lamentation as if God is not our Father and Christ is not our brother and we do not have the Holy Spirit and there is no heaven to gain and the kingdom has not come. Let's, with more confidence and assurance, though we be conflicted and though there be fear and sorrow and though Sorrows like sea bellows roll. Be taught to say it is well with my soul. Because God has done great things. And he has given us an example of obedience in Abraham and in Christ. If you sing the song, when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unceasing grace. Let that be true in your life. When darkness hides his face, rest on his grace and go through it in obedience and may praise come out of you. Let's close in a word of prayer.